Let's go. Let's go. Luke. Luke chapter 2. Hey, hey, come on now. This is a, this is a milestone. This is a milestone. Chapter 2. We're feeling good. It's a day of celebration. We've only got 23 more to go, I think. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, to, I think, to my credit, I think Luke chapter 1, it must have most verses of any gospel. I'm not, I mean, 1 and 2 for that matter. I think, how many verses were in chapter 1? 8. There's a lot in there. So, come on, come on, cut me some slack. <laughs> uh, all right, Luke chapter 2. If you need a Bible, I think they already did come by. Raise hand and uh, we'll get one to you. And it's our, it's our gift to you. Um, if, you if you don't have one, you can keep it. Um, let's read verses 1 down to verse 7. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third gospel. We're going to read second chapter, verse 1 down to verse 7. And then I'll pray here before we begin. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. What a bunch of fools in this room, according to the world. We're leaning in, we're getting all excited about a baby in a manger. What a bunch of fools. And yet, Lord, we are a part of that blessed assembly. For whom you've opened eyes to see in, in, in such a low and humble and foolish moment the wisdom and the power and the might and the glory of God to save. God so loved the world, He sent His only Son, that whoever would see and believe upon Him, not perish, but have eternal life. There is victory in these moments to be had for your Son and all who would trust in Him. Jesus, we're asking you to come We're asking you to open our eyes wider. 
I don't want to value what the world values, Lord. I don't want to be stuck. God, we want to walk in the freedom of the children of God. We want to see glory where You see glory. We want to sing where the angels sing. You have to do a work in us, Jesus. There's so many pressures, so many forces in the world, the flesh, the devil, moving against this sort of worship, moving against this sort of glory, this sort of vision. And so, God, please, Holy Spirit, please, Jesus, please, be present and help us. Help us to feel appropriately in response to the glory that is before us. Would you meet us here? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, grab some water real quick. So allow me to ask a question. Perhaps some of you were thinking, but might be too, um, uh, too not ashamed, but you know, too afraid to ask. Uh, what are we doing? Studying a Christmas text in December, January, February. (laughs) Why are we looking at a Christmas text in February? Does it not feel a little awkward to you? Um, A little out of place? Like this is what we do on, on Christmas Eve kind of services with the Advent candles and the nativity set up. And this is what we do, you know, Christmas time of the year. What are we doing in a Christmas text in February? Kind of feels a little out of place, like maybe we're behind the times, all the other churches have moved on, and what are we doing back here, you know? Actually, kind of like one of the, the houses down my block. Forgive me if you're, you're still in this boat. I just threw away our poinsettias last night, so we were here. But kind of like the house down the block that still has the Christmas lights on, you know? And they're coming on every night. <laughs> It's February, you know, like let's take those down and, and we'll put them up next year. Is that how this text feels when we come to it? A little awkward, a little out of place. We were over at a friend's house um, a little bit ago and I noticed on their, their wall, painted in beautiful calligraphy, um, was actually a verse from this narrative in Luke, just a few verses down, chapter uh, 2 verse 11, where it says this, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we think Christmas, you know, Christmas. And I was looking, I'm like, wait a minute. That's permanently on their wall. That's not just a Christmas thing that you put up, you know, uh, at the holiday. That's there year in and year out. No why would you want that on your wall? And I had to immediately repent as I thought that. Immediately. Because I, I dare say that, that these friends of mine remember something, know something, understand something that I'm prone to forget. And that is that the incarnation is essential to the whole system of redemption. It, it underlies Everything that is the gospel. And therefore, it is not just relevant one day, one season a year, but every day of my life. Your life. 
The incarnation, Jesus entering into humanity, undergirds the whole system, structure of redemption. If that's not there, everything else we could talk about falls apart. Doesn't hold together. Responding to all the controversies um, regarding the nature of Christ in the early centuries, uh, which there were a lot of them, <laughs> probably about, I think, 4th century, so around the 300s AD, um, uh, there's a guy by the name of Gregory of Nazianzus. And he argued famously, now hear this, it's a little older language, but what has not been assumed, meaning taken on, okay, not you know, assumed like I had an idea and I thought I knew without all the facts. Not that kind of assumed. But taken on. What has not been assumed by Christ has not been healed. Do you hear this? What has not been assumed has not been healed. In other words, if God did not take on humanity in full, if He did not assume humanity, if God did not take on a man's nature, then man cannot be healed. Humanity cannot be healed. We needed, we needed a man to stand in our place. Because we, man, Adam, and everyone after, covenant breakers deserving covenant curse. And so we needed a man to come in, pay the covenant curse, secure the covenant blessings in our place as our substitute. If Jesus did not assume humanity, become man, He could not heal us. We couldn't be healed. This was back when people were saying, oh, God would never take on a human nature and all these other things. If God didn't take on a human nature, we're dead. (laughs) We're dead. It's like Paul would say regarding the bodily resurrection. Same thing you could say of the incarnation. If He didn't come in the flesh, take on human nature, we are still dead in our sins. Therefore, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, again, God becoming man, is profoundly relevant, not just for a season, but for every day of my life. It's pertinent now. <laughs> because He did this, I'm here today with hope, standing uh, in the grace of the Gospel. Now, setting apart a, a season or a day or two or whatever to reflect upon certain aspects of, of Christ's redemptive accomplishments like Christmas or Easter, all that's great. That's awesome. I mean, we want to do that. But, but, but it's not so that we kind of spend our time there uh, during that you know, one day season of the year and we move on from it. No, no, no. What is actually happening is the opposite. Those days are put in place on our calendar to make sure we don't forget. Okay? It's actually to refocus us on what we ought to be focused on all the year long. Does that make sense? So coming to this text, we could come here any day. We could come here November. We could come here October. We should be meditating on Christmas, so to speak, every day. That He came in to humanity to save us. 
This isn't just a Christmas text. It's an every day of my life text. End of introduction. <laughs> now I'm going to apportion my thoughts under two headings here, and you should see them on your handout. Um, the first uh, is, is the Lord over history. The Lord over history, and that's verses 1 through 5. And then secondly, the Lord in history, verses 6 through 7. So let's get moving on this then. First, the Lord over history, verses 1 through 5. I'm not going to reread them, but we're going to kind of recount some of the stuff that's there. Um, In our text, Bethlehem is called the city of David, verse 4. And it's called the city of David because that's where David was born, if you remember. We might get back into that story a little bit uh, next week. I'm not sure. But he was born in Bethlehem, and therefore it is the city of David. Now, Bethlehem is also a place of prophetic expectation. And you probably do know this because of some of the Christmas stories and the, and the Christmas services that you've, you've been to. Um, but it seems that there was a consensus among Jews in Jesus' day that the Messiah, the promised king coming in the line of David, would be born in the city of of David, So the Messianic hope was attached not only to David, uh, his line, but also to his city, Bethlehem. And this consensus, you see it in like Matthew 2 when Herod's talking to the leaders, where is this child going to be born? And they're, they're, they're pointing to uh, Bethlehem. And they point to Bethlehem specifically because of one text in the Old Testament. Micah 5. Um, there's no really easy way for me to tell you how to get to Micah. It's kind of right in the middle of all the prophets, okay? Um, but Micah 5, you might want to turn there if you know where it is, or you can just listen closely here. Uh, Micah 5, 1 through 3 is what I'm going to read, but let me give you the background real quick to this. So again, Bethlehem has all this prophetic expectation uh, um, associated with it. And what we see in this Old Testament text in Micah um, is Micah, this Old Testament prophet, called to kind of come in to, to minister to Israel at a time when their sins, their sins were, were just about, I mean almost, just toppling the, the nation over uh, the cliff and in, into God's judgment. They're just standing on the edge at this point. And Micah is called by God to go in and speak to this people. And um, the immediate context of, of Micah 5 is probably the, uh, the Assyrian siege, okay? This is when uh, in Judah, Hezekiah was there, and Sennacherib's coming in, and they're, they're, starting, to, they're starting to break down the walls and come after, uh, come after Jerusalem. But there's even more in view, because like in Micah 4.10, uh, there's already talk from God to the people about Babylon, about the Babylonian exile, about what's coming. You guys, your sins, it's too much. Exile is coming. So there's kind of like this, 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 this kind of deathly kind of shadow cast over the people of God at this point. But then Micah 5. It's into the gloom. It's into the gloom of this context that, that this prophecy is given. All right, and I want you to hear this. Micah 5.1 Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. That's a weird phrase, but just city of troops, daughter of troops, Israel. Get your troops together. Siege 
is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So these enemy nations are just putting the king and the people to shame. And then verse 2, here it is. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Did you hear this? It's a lot there. Let me sum it up. Israel, you're going to be given up. You're going to be given over to, to war, exile, and discouragement because of your sin. But there's going to there's going to come a day there is going to be a time all that's going to happen until the time when she who is in labor has given birth you're going to be given over until the time of a birth of a child this child is going to rise up as a ruler in Israel and he's going to gather a faithful remnant to himself. And he, this child, this ruler, who they associated with the Messiah, is going to be born in little insignificant Bethlehem. It's pretty awesome when you think about it. But there's a major, at the point of our verses in, in Luke, there is a major historical dilemma. Okay? We know that Jesus is that child, that promised ruler who's going to rise up and, and, and save his people and us. Gather us to himself. We know that. But there's a, there's a massive problem <laughs> if this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And that is... Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth, in Galilee, a town about 90 miles north of uh, Jerusalem. I'm sorry, of, of Bethlehem. And so we're looking in at these details and we say, okay, God, what are you going to do? How are you going to take that family, that child, and have him born there? In Bethlehem. Now, what amazed me as I, as I came to our text in Luke um, isn't the fact that God actually fulfills His Word, okay? That's not all that amazing. When you walk with God long enough, you realize, okay, you know what? His Word stands. This God is faithful. It's kind of like what I remember reading in um, Joshua when they're standing, you know, uh, in the promised land now and they've conquered their enemies and things. Joshua says, uh, he says this in Joshua 21, 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Not one word failed. All came to pass. So we know that. We know our God is faithful. Not one word's going to drop. That didn't amaze me. Perhaps it should have. What, what really amazed me was how God brought this word 
to pass, the fulfillment of this word to pass. What amazed me was the whole, the kind of sheer earthiness of the whole narrative, the whole scene, the way he did it. He used such seemingly natural means to accomplish such supernatural ends. Tell you what I mean. A census. Probably for the purpose of taxation. Okay? A census by by a greedy emperor. (laughs) Want to make sure I'm getting all the money I can from you. That, that is what moves this family. It seems like he called for them to go to the, the place of their ancestral home. So, so, so um, Joseph, being in the line of David, would go to the house of David in where David was born, Bethlehem. Okay? And so they're going, and because of this census, because of this emperor's greed, now all of a sudden, Joseph and Mary, with child, the Messiah in her womb, end up in Bethlehem at just the right moment, in fulfillment of Micah 5.2. As one commentator observes, the accidental events of history have become... Acts of destiny. What seems ordinary, happenstance, accidental, had behind and beneath it the very hand of God. Seen this? Just seems normal. A greedy emperor, that's about as common as it gets. But beneath, behind, God's hand moving this family forward to fulfill His Word. does this all over the place. On your handout, I put a question there regarding Second Chronicles 36. I couldn't include it here. Read that text and watch Him do it again. And think with me about more places that He does this sort of thing. But He's on the move here. And we're given kind of this window into the way God fulfills His Word. I thought we'd be smart to linger here for a moment, to get into this story with with Joseph and Mary for a moment. Because we'll start to be able to to bring it into our lives if we do this. I thought, man, with Joseph and Mary, I mean, this has got to be seen. This census, this we've got to register, we've got to travel 90 miles south. This has got to be seen as a major disruption at this point. As a major inconvenience. You know, you're looking at this and you're thinking, no way. I, I, you've been, you ladies been, some of you ladies have been pregnant before. You gotta think, I mean, she must have been right near nine months. And you get this news, you're like, are you serious? <laughs> I don't know how long it would have taken. I tried to do research. It said like a healthy male could travel about 20 miles a day, you know, and so maybe five days. But, you're, and whether they had animals, nobody, nobody really knows, even though the movies all depict these things. It's like, whether it was five days or with a, with a, with an almost ready to burst, you know, lady, it, it probably took them ten days and they're sitting there going, no way, this, this is so inconvenient. This is brutal. Why do we have to do this? I remember actually even with my wife, we, we had a, she was three months pregnant when we went on our little caravan from, from St. Louis Obispo to Philly and me being the, the loving, protective husband that I am 
thought to save money, thought, okay, well, we'll sleep in tents, you know? <laughs> well, it's the middle of summer, and, and oh, it was bad. It was so bad, you know? We're sweating, and there was this place in Arches National Park. It was insane. We were trying to stay. We just got up and left in the middle of the night because the wind and everything was... I got this pregnant lady with me, and it's like, so I'm sitting there going, man, this is hard, I bet. This is really hard. And she probably, I mean, you got to think the temptation to grumble, to be discontent, to go, what is the deal with this emperor? God, what is the deal with you? I mean, I thought this is your child, supposedly. What are you making us do this for? Right now, when I'm about to go into labor here, I just want to be in my bed. You know? And yet, behind and beneath all this seemingly natural stuff was the hand of God. They might have been disoriented, they might have been distressed, but God knew right where they were and He knew right where He was taking them. And He had a purpose for it in the middle of it all. They might not have felt it, He was doing it. So, here's what I, how I want to apply this to us for a moment. I mean, first we do have to ask, what right do we have to draw lines from, from this story, this narrative, into the details of our lives? Is God actually doing that in Nick Weber's life? I mean, I get it with Jesus. He's Jesus. This is God's son. I mean, God's going to intervene and, and organize history in such a way that his son will, will, will get to where he needs to be. But me? You? Isn't that kind of presumptuous for us to think that God's doing this in the details of our lives? That the natural stuff that's going on is actually pushing us forward in His plan? Well, let me just barrage you with some texts here that say, okay, this is right. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I don't have time to explain all these. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Or Matthew 10, 29. You'll get this one if you didn't the previous. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Little birds, when they die, God is there. That's what the text says. And he's using that in context to say, how much more is he going to be there with you? In every detail. Little, insignificant bird flying over your head. Detail. Romans 8.28, you know this one. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, big, little, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. In Him, Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. It's just another way of saying Romans 8, 28. All things are working in the end for your glory and the praise of His grace. If you're His kid. He's over it all. 
He is in it all. So it is not presumptuous for us to look at this text, draw the lines into the details of my life and say, whoa, He is there, He is there. He is everywhere. I'm looking for His hand everywhere because it's there. It's not presumptuous. It is actually paramount to the walk of faith. We do this. Now, there is mystery. There is mystery that subsists in, in, in this whole kind of how does, does the divine sovereignty of God relate to, you know, human will and, fr- and freedom and all that indecision and all that. There is mystery there. But we must not forego one for the other and say it's all of man and man's kind of deciding and God's reacting. Nor should we say it's all of God and we're just these robots. Somehow there is a mystery that holds. And we know that in all the decisions of men, even in a, even in an emperor's decision, greedy decision to get taxes or whatever it is, God's there. God's there. In fact, it seems to me that one of the chief secrets of the Christian life, you guys, is learning to see His hand behind and beneath everything that comes at us. The moment we start thinking the details, the little stuff, is just random and aimless and purposeless, is the moment we, we, we lose the very essence of faith. And we lose the very power to live the Christian life. But, when we start seeing that every detail, everything that's going on, God, it, God is moving it. God has a purpose for it. It comes to us with, with, with intelligence, meaning uh, God's mind, God's plan behind it. Then all of a sudden, now I can look and I'm going, okay, I can respond with faith. I trust Him in this. And a hope. I know He's going somewhere with this. And I can respond in love in those moments. Even to the people that hurt me, frustrate me, and the situations that are hard. Does it make sense? Suddenly, I'm serious about this, we can approach an upturned toilet seat. I'm serious, ladies, I'm serious. <laughs> we can approach an upturned toilet seat, a traffic jam, a job the motion, a stubbed toe, or an emperor's decree with this sort of unswerving faith that no matter how big or small it is, God is in the midst of it. That's the reason why I just fleshed out how uncomfortable the whole thing would have been for Mary and Joseph. It's just so natural. Ugh, there's dirt, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if they were hot or not, but I'm tired, and oh, this is not easy. And yet God, sovereign God, fingerprints all over it. So all of a sudden, we're looking at the details in such a different way. God, what are you saying? What are you doing? And I would encourage us, let's not despise the way God might choose to rearrange or disrupt, (laughs) disorder our plans. Let's not despise that. I had this idea in my mind how it was supposed to go down. And now it's all in disarray. You want to know what? Sometimes the way God moves His plan forward is by having our plans unravel. 
But I will tell you this, there is no rearview mirror in God's vehicle, if you will. He's not wrapping around and, ooh, I better fix that. He is always advancing with us. And it's just an issue of, are we coming along with Him for the ride in our hearts? Are we trusting Him? You know what? This hurts, but He's getting us to the city of David to fulfill every last word. Okay? Now, time's it. Okay, all right. The Lord in history. The Lord in history. Just looked at the Lord over history, how He's moving things to fulfill His Word, and He's at work in this this birth story of His Son. Now we see in verses 6 through 7 that the Lord over history is entering into it. Again, incredible mystery here. The timeless one coming into time. I want to read these verses, these two verses, six and seven here. While they were there, the time came for her, Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, we need to make note of something. The, the details of the Christmas story... Uh, they have actually been crystallized for us in tradition beyond what we have in any text, okay? We, we need to know that. There are a few things that we need to just admit we don't know. Uh, we don't know that, we, that Mary and, and Joseph knocked on like every door in the town and all these people were saying, no, get out of here. What we know is that there was no room in the inn. So, you know, I, I don't know if that's a lot of inns or at least there's one inn that, that they're talking about in particular here. We know there's no place. There's no place for him. And we know that that is foreshadowing something bigger, which we'll see in a moment. Nor are we certain, uh, for that matter, what precisely this in is, just so you know. The Greek word is a bit ambiguous. It is. Uh, Luke uses it elsewhere to refer to a guest house. So um, it's not necessarily this, this kind of inn. It could have been a public shelter. could have been a guest house. We're not sure. But we, all we know, again, no place. No place. We are also not sure where exactly, therefore, Jesus was born. Could have been a stable. Could have been. That's one, one viable option. Could have also been a cave. That's where they would, we know because of the manger that he was with animals in some way or another. That could have been a stable, could have been a cave, could have even been in the open, under the open sky. Okay? Now, that's what we don't really know. What we do know, and this gets important, is that the Son of God, the King of glory, the Alpha and the Omega, the one through whom all things have been made, the one by whom all things are upheld. The Lord over history, when he finally enters into it, enters in as a baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals, because there was no place for them in the end. That's what we know. One commentator, after noting all that we don't know for sure about his birth, puts it this way. We know only that everything points to poverty, obscurity, 
and rejection. Poverty, obscurity, and rejection. That's where the details direct us. That much we know. And the burning question that emerges at this point in my mind, my heart, and hopefully yours as well is, okay, if you're the Lord over history, if you're the Lord over history to such a degree that you can engineer circumstances to get your son in Bethlehem at just the right time to be born in fulfillment of Micah 5.2, you're that kind of sovereign God. Why in the world... Why in the world do you choose to enter history this way? That's the burning question. What is the Lord of heaven and earth doing sleeping with the animals? Open a room for him. Let the kings know and come to this one. Why poverty, obscurity, and and rejection? What is God communicating to us here? We've got to think about, you know, how great people are typically introduced in this world, right? You gotta th- think about it so that we can, we can stand in amazement at what God's doing, contrast it with what, what we do naturally in this world. I used to go to basketball games with my dad. And, and how are the basketball players introduced at a game? And the lights go out and everybody starts, boo, 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 you know, and they all have their song and the lights are flashing and all this stuff. And they come out and they're doing chest bumps and everyone's screaming, you know? Everyone's pumped. Or how do movie stars show up at the Oscars or whatever? They got the red carpet and every, you know, every news reporter around is flashing the cameras and here they are. You know, fans are fainting and stuff. I thought about this. Even the Pope gets to show up in the Pope mobile, you know? Like he gets the Pope mobile. It's not as cool as the Batmobile, but still, it's awesome. Or check this out. I mean, this is here's a you want to talk about a, a prince or someone important being born. Um, this was incredible when when Princess Kate had her her, her son, her first son. I had to look it up. His name was Prince George. I didn't know this, but anyways, uh, they actually had reporters in Rittenhouse Square, Philly, where we were, and Megan gets interviewed on the news for this to get our response. What do you think about this child being born? You know, it's like, ah, uh, yeah, it's cool, you know. But, but the whole world is leaning in and excited because someone of significance is born, someone important. And the greater the importance, the greater the introduction that that person is given. And so whether we are familiar with this story or not, the disparity with our culture and how we would typically handle this sort of situation ought to shock us. It ought to shake us a little bit. Why is God doing this? Because it seems like when the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is born, nobody cares. I mean, you have heaven who in a few verses is, is, is like can't even contain its joy. But it's, it's questionable whether 
men would have even seen it had heaven not shown up in, 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 in starry signs for the magic. It's here, look! And the shepherds would not have noticed this child if the angels hadn't. Men were just oblivious, too busy, just doing our own thing, going our own way. It's kind of, this is kind of Luke's equivalent of what happens in John 1 where the light of the world comes in but the people love the darkness. Don't care. Don't see it. Nothing special here. So why? If you could enter in any way, Lord over history, why enter this way? He didn't come for the glamour and the fame. There's this point, if you recall, I think it's both in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where Satan offers him the kingdoms of this world. Satan's ready. <laughs> oh, I'll give you, I'll give you the glory of this world. I'll give it to you. You can have it. And, say, and Jesus essentially says, get behind me. I didn't come, I didn't come to set my throne on this earth yet. Keyword. I came, you know, as well as I do, Satan, to die. And in dying, to put my foot at the throat of the serpent. I came to die. Therefore, therefore, what we have in verses 6 through 7 is the gospel in miniature. It is the gospel in capsule form. It is the end of his life here foreshadowed at its beginning. Because I hate to say it, but we know it's true. It only gets worse for Jesus from here. This is the best it will get for him. I was thinking about. The, so the night's sleep he got there in the manger, the feeding trough with the animals, probably the best few nights sleep he ever got during his time on this earth. You remember his text, or what he says in Luke 9, 58? Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere, not even a manger, to lay his head. I'm just a sojourner. I'm just sleeping on the dirt. It's just going to get worse for him from here. I mean, this is as great as it gets. The, the, the poverty, the obscurity, the rejection just get a sharper point on them as his life goes on. And Philippians 2 gives, this, gives us this sort of descending staircase that is his life. Philippians 2, 6-8, through 8. you probably know the text, but it's worthwhile going there, especially when talking about the Incarnation. Hear this, descending staircase. He's just going down, 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 until he goes way up. <laughs> Though he was in the form of God, now he's eternity past, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Incarnation, likeness of men, taking on human nature. 
And, verse 8, being found in human form, he's going lower. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Not just any death. One more step down. Even death on a cross. Utterly shamed. So Jesus would step down from the manger to the cross where this heavenly king is made utterly impoverished, right? Where the name above all names is just trampled into obscurity. Where uh, uh, the, 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 what's the last one we had? Obscurity, poverty, rejection. Where, I mean, you're talking about Jew, you're talking about Gentile, you're talking about all the human race turning on him, even, even his father. Rejection. Pouring it out on him like acid rain. Rejection on that cross. And he's doing it, he's going through this because of yours and my sin. I mean, that's, that's my poverty. That's my obscurity. That's my rejection. That's what I deserve. And He's doing it in my place for my redemption. For my redemption. Remember what Gregory says, what has not been assumed has not been healed. But He took on the likeness of human flesh. He took on human nature and He went where I should have gone and He died how I should have died under the wrath of God. And when He rose, He rises as my substitute, as the firstborn among many brethren from the dead, conquering over Satan's sin and death and inviting now the remnant in around Him. You and I, if we repent and we believe and receive what He has done, eternal life by grace, ours. That's all anticipated. Verses 6 and 7, the greatest king of the world coming into just cloths and lying with the animals. No one around to care. He's coming for us. He's coming for us. Now, the way the sovereign Lord over history chooses to enter into it explodes with implications for us. I had a lot. I cut them all out, except for maybe two. I'm going to close with them here for us. The incarnation implies that God is not interested in the show. I want you to hear one, one commentator on this. The most humble birth for the most exalted figure ever born shows that the key values of life are found in the life itself, not in the accoutrements that come with it. The note of humility surrounding this birth of Jesus issues a major challenge to our culture, where boastful and self-promoting public relations are often a way of life. The birth of Jesus shows that greatness is not a function of the size of one's bank account or one's social resume. Status does not make the person... For God recognizes the quality of the inner person. 
The incarnation, in other words, is an affront on the world's value system. It just is. Just like we wouldn't do it this way. We're not aiming to be like Jesus. Everyone out there not wanting to be like this. Poverty, obscurity, rejection, we're going after something else. And we have to ask ourselves, the incarnation kind of gets in the face of the flesh and says, what are you valuing? What are you doing? Are you looking in here and seeing foolishness and, and weakness? Or are you looking you're seeing wisdom and power? You see in God's grace, are you seeing something worth imitating, something you want in your life? Or when we kind of step out of church on Sundays, are we just kind of, you know, fitting right back into the world's value system? I want to, I want to get to know the right people. And I, I want to get, you know, the right address. I want to live in the right part of the city. That'll get me some esteem. Are we, are we in the show? You guys? You know, or maybe if I, if I get the right dress size, then I'll get the right guy, or whatever it is. Are we in the show? Are we parading? Are we, are we, are we learning from the incarnation or not? Because the incarnation says to us, hey, here's what, here's what God values. Here's what Jesus values. Here's what we're all about. Humility, brokenness, lowliness, those things, those things are a sweet aroma to our God, even if they're a stench to the world. Second and final implication that I'll leave us with. The incarnation implies that God is the only true Christian. Do you wonder if you know what I mean by that? The incarnation implies that God is the only true Christian. Here's what I mean. Some of us are still trying too hard, probably, to do this Christian thing. To do this Christian life. We still got the soap out. Right? We got the soap out and we're going at our behavior. And we're going at our, 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 our tongues. And we're going at our, our thoughts. And we're trying hard to clean ourselves up because we're Christians. And what Paul says of the Jews might be true of us here, where, where in Romans 10, 2 through 4, he says this, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. They're trying hard. But it's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they don't submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Christ is the only true Christian. You can't do this. Before the incarnation says anything else, it says man is lost. (laughs) We don't have any hope of bettering ourselves. That's why God rolls up His sleeves, comes into humanity, and does it for us. But here's the thing. This is what's so awesome about the Gospel, you guys. God's always holding together two realities in tension, and they seem opposite and paradoxical, and they're so important. And I'll just leave us with this. The incarnation is, on one hand, a rebuke, a reproach. It says, man, you could not do it. Kind of like when a boss 
has like these employees under him and they just can't figure it out. So finally he's like, all right, I'm coming in and I'm doing it, right? I'll do it for you. There's this kind of reproach built in. There's this condemnation. It says, we cannot do this thing. We are not able to clean ourselves, to make our way back up to God. It's not going to happen. That's why he comes down. But he's not, on the other hand, like that boss who's ready to fire you. You know, three strikes and you're out. No, no, no. He comes down ready to forge a new partnership with us. What we see is not only are we condemned in and of ourselves, but we are loved beyond our wildest dreams. And this is happening at one and the same time as God enters humanity. I'm going to clean you up because you can't do it. So stop trying. I'm coming in. I'm going to forge a new partnership. I'm not going to lord it over you. I'm actually going to come in and start to live this life for you. And then now in you and through you. Does it make sense? This is why Paul would say Galatians 2.20, the life I now live. How does he live it? The life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And he begins at saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. He's the only true Christian comes in to live it for us and then he sends his spirit now to live it again through us amen so there's the big question I, I leave you with is the Lord over history the Lord in you have we received what he's done are we resting in him are we walking with him are we asking him to do this in us he's ready to do it let's pray Jesus, we um, thank you. We thank you for the way that you have come. In all humility, in poverty, obscurity, to be rejected even by the Father, cast out of this world so you could save it. There was no one like our Savior. There's no one like you. There's no king like you. What kind of king leaves his throne for the enemy, for the peasant? What kind of king does that? Not a king of this world, not a Caesar, but our Messiah, our God. He does it. And we give you the praise. We give you the thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.